A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Anne-Marie Batson, the writer and broadcaster, by Sophie Downey from Girls on the Ball, and by Glenn Moore, women's football columnist for World Soccer. Opportunity knocks once again. The Premier League's uncertain experiment with the winter break gives the women's game another chance to win new converts. It's on the rise and is, in many ways, a breath of fresh air. Yet the game needs critical friends and not cheerleaders. It's come a long way and still has far to go. What's the reality of the women's game at the moment? The reality of the women's game at the moment is that it is on the up, but it still needs a lot of work. It's far from perfect, as you just mentioned there, that it needs critical friends, it needs advocates to keep the support going. But it is in a good place. But you always want to improve the women's game, and it's... It's, it's taking one step at a time to reach certain levels. And I think domestically, the game is starting to grow. But I think you're starting to see now which teams, particularly in the WSL, are getting the bigger crowd attendances compared to others as well. But also, on the other hand, you're seeing a lot more attention now focused on the FA Cup and the League Cup as well. So it's working in some places, but not necessarily in others. Mm. You were at a championship game yesterday, yeah. Sophie. What's the standard of that like relative to the WSL? I mean, there is a jump, to be fair, but I mean, the top of the league, I think whoever gets promoted will, will do well or has a good chance if they invest next year to stay up there. There's a lot of good players around. It's just getting that investment and getting that backing behind the clubs in the championship as well as in the WSL to keep that progression going on. Mm. What about the integration with the men's game or the men's host clubs, Glenn? You know, we look at Arsenal and they've got their one club policy, Manchester City, Chelsea are fully integrated in the club. The more clubs need to be like that. Eventually, yes. I mean, and the quicker the better. It does appear, and the women's game has always been dependent on this to an extent, it requires one or two individuals in positions of importance to want to do it. And you get some clubs interested for a while and then either someone leaves or someone becomes, or they decide it's not so so sexy, not so interesting. I mean, Liverpool would be a good example of that, whereby they were one of the first people to really invest in their team and they appear now to have sort of left it to drift a little. And others are making sort of slow progress. I mean, Spurs have made quite big strides in recent years, but for example, clearly have some way to go. So it's a, it's a steady thing. Some clubs are moving much faster than others and showing in the league. Because mm. you look at last weekend's fixtures, number two were postponed. Liverpool, no team can play on a pitch like Prenton Park. Do they need to move that? 
There is a lot of discussion around that. And actually, somebody made a really good point yesterday about that about the cancellation of the game that it doesn't just affect the players and, and the coaching staff it affects people who want to come and see it as well it's a difficult one I'm sure there's a lot of politics involved and a lot of logistics involved it's one that it, it's a situation that cannot continue but let's be honest it's not just affecting the women's league it's across the board as well down in the grassroots but in terms of the women's league if, if we want the league to grow both in the WSL and the championship you need decent pitches to play on yeah and that's you know across the board also you know if you look at Tottenham yesterday, they couldn't get on onto their pitch at the Hive at Barnet. Does that then point up? You, know, you mentioned the, the fact, Glenn, that you know, the Spurs have still got a long way to go. You know, we hit, we read things about you know they have to take their own sandwiches, the training, that type of thing. Is that closer to the reality than the sort of glitz that we see with the ten million pound sponsorship deal of WSL? I think there's a big range across the clubs in the WSL about the amount of resources that they have access to from the, the top to the bottom. I mean, it's a shame that that happens with Spurs, I think. They've obviously come up, up a very in a quick space of time, a very fast. I mean, they've got to kind of catch up behind the scenes as well as on the football pitch. But they are making progress and it's a very young professional game here. I mean, we're, what, two seasons old into mm. professional football? Mm. It's going to take time for everything to get up to the, the standard that we need it to be. I mean, one of the problems obviously is most of them are sharing grounds with lower league men's clubs. So therefore, A, the lower league men's club gets priority, but clearly those, those pitches don't get that sort of investment that they would at higher end. I mean, Tramir also have to play on that pitch, you know, and, and they attract bigger crowds. Manchester United played on that pitch last week so, and played quite well on it. The, the one exception will be Chelsea where Kingsmeadow has been Wimbledon's ground, he's now Chelsea's ground, but Chelsea got their ground staff in to, to run it, and it's a pitch, the pitch can clearly cope with the amount of work that's been put on it, having a lower division team and Chelsea's academy boys and the women's team playing there, and the pitch still looks in fantastic condition. So obviously it can be done with enough money. I think Tramway is a long-term problem with the drainage, which they can't fix until the summer. But other places, clearly there's not been the investment in manpower or the machinery and drainage and stuff to, for the pitches to be adequate. Mm. You've got the Merseyside derby on Sunday at Goodison. Again, one of those showcase occasions. How important is it that that reflects well on both clubs? Oh, hugely important. And I'm really excited about it because the significance of having it at Goodison Park of all those years ago, women's matches been played there. Mm. And I think that makes it really, really exciting. To I mean, I'm a bit of a history nerd, so I love all the history behind it anyway. So I think it's really, really good. And I think you're going to get a really good crowd. Everton will be pushing quite hard. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah, very much so, very much so. So good for Everton for getting it sorted at Goodison Park. Mm. And they seem to be developing as a, as a club and a team, don't they? Yeah, they've come on massive strides this, this year. I think Everton were always a team full of young potential and they just never seemed to quite click. And you were just waiting for it to happen, but it just didn't seem to be happening until this season. I think Willie Kirk's he's had a really good influence. He's, he had a, good, what, a, a year to settle everything down, get his people in his transfers. And yeah, they're starting to come, come good. And to have two Mer- Merseyside derbies played in the big stadiums, I mean, that, that's huge. Mm. And also it's huge that Liverpool have to stay up, don't they? Well, it's a bit embarrassing if the men run away with the league, winning basically virtually every game all season, the women get relegated. It, does sort of, it doesn't look good on how they're being run in the club at the top in that respect in terms of the way they view the women's team. Yeah, so it's very important for Liverpool that they stay up, but someone has to go down. I mean, they've picked up recently and they haven't lost heavily. I mean, their goal difference is still pretty good, so they've not been losing heavily. They've just not quite managed to edge those tight games. Mm. If you have to be quite dispassionate about it, who are the ones that are likely to go down? Or who is, who is likely to go down? Who is likely to go down? I think uh, Liverpool, looking at one of them, 
potentially Birmingham as well I throw in there and with a heavy heart maybe Bristol City mm. as well I, they're the three I'm, I'm of course I don't want anybody to mm. go down because it, you know I think all three that are fantastic teams but like Lane said the reality is big win for yeah. Brighton yesterday yeah getting a little bit of a gap because they've played think, more yeah, games than right. others as well I know they have to win those games but there's a quite big win for them yeah so yeah. I'd say those those are my three I don't know what you guys think I think, think. when you look at Liverpool they have the squad like they're, the players there are good players. They have the squad. They just don't seem to, again, be clicking. So you kind of think that that experience that they have in their ranks can kind of pull them through. I would say Birmingham are probably in, in, in a bit of trouble. They just can't seem to get the momentum going. And, yeah, Bristol, it breaks my heart. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, Liverpool's problem might be trying to get all those games played. Mm. I mean, uh, we're talking players, I know they're, they're full-time in theory, but I mean, full-time is relatively recent, and to play a lot of games in quite quick succession is going to be difficult. Mm. Can we look also at the emergence of Manchester United this season? Mm. And their match against Reading highlighted one of the, for me, one of the central issues about the women's game, which is the, the standard of officiating. They were absolutely done by an unbelievably bad decision, weren't they? Yes. Yeah, they were, and Casey Stoney made her feelings very clear about the toy. And it's not the first time she's spoken about it either, and I don't think she's the only coach or head coach. I think she'd change her mind about not wanting VAR. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, to be quite vocal about it. Again, it, it's it's that jigsaw, isn't it, of getting all the pieces into, into place so everything works together, sorting out the pitches, sorting out the refereeing. I think the refereeing does need looking at it. And I, I don't want to say it's a work in progress, but it is mm. because it's getting it's getting up to that standard of what we want to deliver. But it was an extraordinary decision, you know, for people yes. who haven't seen it. Yeah, you know, it was. Basically, it was headed away for a free kick was headed away for a corner and was given handball. Yes, you know. I mean, it must admit, you think, okay, referees missed seen it, but then when you gauge the reaction of the players mm. on both sides, no one's appealed for it. Was well, they just turned then around. Then you think went, went so for a obviously happened here. I go over and chat to my lines, lines person to buy myself some time. And no one's appealed. They look, and then basically just you know, change my mind. You know, say oh, they've consulted or something like that. Surprise! Normally, you can tell from players' reactions. You know, but instant reactions are giveaway. Yeah, don't want to appear negative on this, so because you know the product is there, and I think we saw that with the farewell to Nick Cushing. Although he did make his farewell message, clubs need to actually sponsor the the, the women's game or get behind the women's game. You know, with greater consistency. What was the significance of City's defeat of Arsenal? Well, I, I think Arsenal are going to find it a real struggle to win that, their trophy back. It's just kind of taken it out of their hands and they're in a battle for that second place now for the Champions League, which is all important. City, I think they, they were fired up by the defeat in the Conti Cup. They were angered by that. And then also saying goodbye to Nick, who's done a great service to them over the years and pulled that club into what they are now and, and led the way and become a really av good advocate for the women's game and pushing for that investment. And I think he'll be missed by everyone in the league, but I think they wanted to, to win it for him and it just gave them a bit of an extra oomph. Mm. How would you characterise his six years at City? It's been very significant, not least because, unlike Arsenal and Chelsea, he's he invested heavily in young English players as a core of the team, picking them up from... You know, a less less glamorous place, I suppose. No disrespect, and, and develop those young players into you know, the core of the England team is the Manchester City team, or players who have been at Manchester City. You look at Lucy Bonds or Tony Duggan, people like that. So I think it's been very significant from a national level as well, and merely sort of getting a club like City 
up there, heavily involved. A club with no history in the women's game, unlike Arsenal, obviously the very illustrious history, and to a lesser extent Chelsea have been heavily involved in the team. So getting them, you know, as one of the three marquee teams, I think it's been very significant. Yeah, because mm. actually, as we sit here, Arsenal can theoretically still win the quadruple, can't they? They could, yeah, and and it, it brings me back to this time last season when they had. Injuries just seem to mm. ravage the squad, and yet they still manage to win the title. So I've still got a little bit of, of hope for them. It is very much like I think Sophie says it's maybe it is looking like battling for that second place. But they are a team that can fight. I think the thing that goes against them is the the size of the squad. I think will have a massive impact. But right now they're still in it for the four, so I'm not going to count them out straight away. Mm. And what about Chelsea? You know they beat West Ham eight nil. There is a sense that they've stepped up another level in in recent weeks even. Yeah. Would you put them down as title favourites? I think now, yeah. I mean, at the moment, they're relentless and they have probably one of the best strikers in the league in Beth England. She's definitely one of the most informed players in the league. And with the attacking players that they have around her and the midfield and defensive, like, I mean, just all <laughs> over the park and on the bench as well. You look at their bench and who they can bring on, Ramona Backman, you know, it generally comes off the bench. It's just, and they, they're without G, Frank Kirby at the moment, without Sam Kerr because they're at the Olympics, and they still go and, and get a result like that yesterday. I mean, you, you have to put them as favourites. Mm, yeah. Emma Hayes was sort of liking herself to Brian Clough the other day. Didn't really sit well. I, I, I look at her and I see a sort of Carlo Ancelotti, a bit of someone who engages his players, you know, a coach who is empathetic towards them. And gives them a bit of leeway to. Yeah, I think maybe she was direction. picking up on the sort of the outspokenness, yeah. perhaps as well. That's not a bad thing, though, is it? No, no, it's not. No, I think I'm slightly loath to say she's the female Ancelotti, the female Klopp, whatever. She's, you know, she's the Emma Hayes, basically. Yeah. She, I mean, there's no obvious example. I'm not even saying Ferguson or something like that. I mean, she's basically she's, she's Emma. She's a, the first Emma Hayes rather than the carbon copy of somebody else or a replica of somebody else. I mean, partly because of her experience outside of the game and you know, experience of the States and stuff. And, you know, so she has got the close bond with her players, but she's obviously can be you know, quite ruthless and sees herself as a bit of a sort of... Well, she just sees herself as a spokesperson. You know, you've got the position to use it to sort of drive the game forward. Mm. Well, she's doing that through Chelsea, mm. isn't she? She, she? she has an integral role at the club. Oh, very much so. When they announced their new sponsorship, Chelsea announced their new shirt sponsorship last week, the official photo that went out was with Frank Lampard and Emma Hayes um, with senior members of staff from Chelsea. And I think that was quite significant, actually, because, you know, a few years ago, it would have just been the men's team, that would have, the manager of the men's team who would have been in that photo. The fact you have Emma Hayes as well, I think, is quite significant. Yeah, because with the women's game, we don't have the cult of personality around managers that you may be doing the men's game, do you? Yet. 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 <laughs> I, th I think Emma will change that. I think Emma oh, yeah. Hayes is becoming her own personality and the, people, the, the person people talk about a lot and about her character and the, what she talks about after the game, how engaging she is with the media in, in terms of talking through the... T I know she had a whole conversation about tactics with them. I think she's definitely becoming that icon in terms of the managers and to be a female manager as well, to be leading the way in that respect we don't have many of them so you know it's coming through so it's a it's a it's a really good aim to have a role model to have mm. do you think that she and maybe Casey Stoney as well will actually act as a sort of touchstone for young coaches coming through and you know we talk about role models probably too much but being a, a oh, real realistic Kelly Chambers Jane Ludlow I mean yeah increasingly 
Yes, I mean, they are very much role models, you know, to show that people can get into those positions and, and be strong people in those positions and be successful as well. I mean, it's interesting if you look at the countries that have won major awards, you know, World Cups, Olympics, and most of them have been led by female coaches in the last 15, 20 years. Now, that might be because the female coaches are better, or it might be because those are the sort of countries that the countries that are most advanced in women's football are the most like prepared to appoint women in senior positions. It's probably a bit of both. I mean, Jill Ellis being obviously the last one to do so. But there's no obvious reason why you know, a woman can't do the same job as a man in terms of football manager, no whatever the players are. Mm. I think, you think you're starting to see it as a real career progression now. Yes. Whereas it wasn't a few years ago. Mm. Um, and you couldn't see the pathway for women to become coaches. Now they are. And as Glenn says, you've got managers all over the league now who, can, who you're starting to see progress towards very top of the but, game. And I former mean, players, I was going to say former mm. players becoming coaches yeah. because you just met, is it the Aston Villa manager? She was a yeah. former player as well. Kelly Chambers was a former player. Hope Powell was a former player. You, there is a pathway now that's being created. And that's really important for yeah. looking after football for when players retire because there was an article this week, I think, about how it's harder it is to retire when you're, like, there's just nothing else. Mm. So what do you do next in preparing that pathway for your your next part of your career. Yeah, the game is, is very fortunate in having you know, people, people like you know, Claire Rafferty who's been in here, mm. where you know, she, I thought, did a very, very good piece, was it last week, talking about ACLs and her own experience having three herself, where because she's a recent player, she can talk with real authority and insight about that particular problem. Yeah, I mean, they have. And those people becoming you know, increasingly prominent, you know, they've got good players like, you know, Enya Luca will be another one, you know, a very recent player who's, who's, who's taken into a moving in executive role at Aston Villa. I think we will see more players like that moving into executive roles. One interesting thing is uh, Cam Barzi is another one who almost certainly will do. She's already done a lot of training behind the scenes. I mean, one of the things about the women's game is that you've got a situation, a bit like in rugby and cricket to an extent, where people have had lives outside of football. Mm. Therefore, they're more equipped to do jobs that aren't specifically related to coaching and stuff like that. You know, jobs around the club because they will have some real-life experience and they're often qualifications and, you know, degrees and, you know, been in offices and so on, which doesn't apply to most people coming through the men's football route because they basically only really play football because you've got to dedicate yourself from 16 to do so. Mm. If we're looking at the future, you know, there's still always talk in the background about the Premier League assuming responsibility for the game. It's never going to go away, is it? No. <laughs> will that be a good or bad thing? I think it's a discussion that needs to be had. The question needs to be asked and it needs to be looked at seriously as well because, if again, we want to grow the game. We want the industry to grow and therefore we need investment and we need, as you mentioned in your intro, critical people and advocates to support that. And if that means involving somebody like the Premier League, I think we need to be open to that idea and not shut it off and go, well, we don't want them to touch the game whatsoever. Let's see what they can bring to the table. Let's have a chat about it and let's see if we can work together on it. Mm. Yeah, they operate on the elitist principles, but they're brilliant at marketing those principles, aren't they? I th yes, I think it's a real conundrum because there's some obvious benefits from it. But what do you do about the clubs who don't have a Premier League side or do they just get left by the way? You've got to really think about those, the mechanisms of bringing everyone through and how that would work. Otherwise, I think you're going to get into a few difficulties. Yeah, Durham, Lewis, teams like that. Yeah. They're not backed by men's Premier League teams. And the average, I mean, I think it'd be a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, obviously, Premier League brings money, status, profile, etc. But the Premier League isn't run by the executive, it's run by the chairman, who the owners. And some of those clubs are, you know, believers in women's sport and so on. And some of them come from countries where, you know, women are second-class citizens. Or their motivation is purely financial. Is there any money in this? So, 
if the Premier League gets involved, it's only going to be beneficial for the women's game if the Premier League is going to get involved and actually want to make a, do it properly and make a real impact. Yeah, merely saying every team must have a women's team and must finance them to this point up to them these minimum standards isn't really going to be enough. It's they've got to actually sort of want to do it. Mm. But even though if you look at a, a commercially driven club like Manchester United, the fact that they are now making, you know, belatedly perhaps, a real investment in that women's team, do you think they are a power in the making? As in Manchester United? Is, yeah. Um, very much so, very much so. And of course, as you rightly mentioned, they came into the game quite late, but you've already seen the massive impact that they've had. I mean, uh, when I learned that they were being promoted into the WSL, I said they were going to be... The, I thought I was looking at a top four, maybe fifth finish for them because of the quality of the players that they have. And the rivalry that is developing between Man City and Man United is is a joy to behold, in a sense, mm. because we've been waiting for that for such a long time. So, yes, they, they are developing to be a, a powerhouse, but I still say Chelsea, Arsenal and Man City are the ones that are the powerhouses right now in the WSL. Yeah. How much have Chelsea been helped so by the fact they're not in the Champions League this year? I think it is a help. It's given them a bit of a break. S games, given them a bit of a rest. You can see with Arsenal at the moment, they're a bit stretched. I mean, to have played all their games and you've seen someone like Miedema, she's played Conti Cup games, she's played FA Cup games and then Champions League games and it's, it's just, I'm sure she's knackered a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just a lot of football. And so I, I think it's given them a bit of a, a chance to just focus on the league a bit and now the Cups come into play. Let's yeah. travel as well. Yeah. yeah. It's not just for the playing, it's a travel. And at the moment, the Women's Champions League, it hasn't got the status so much that it would affect recruitment. Chelsea will still be able to recruit players because of the facilities they've got and because of the investment they make, whereas it's not a situation, I'm not coming to you because you're not in the Champions League, which would happen in the men's game. Yeah. Mm. But that will, will that change as time goes on? Eventually. Will, will the Champions League become the draw card? Oh, very much so, very much. We, we saw that the reason, you know, one of the reasons Nikita Paris moved on from City mm. is because she wanted to play more Champions League football. I think it already is. To some, you know, to Americans, some Americans want to come and play in the Champions League because there's nothing like that in America. You know, you basically just play in America. Yeah, so some of them, that has been attraction to get some of the players over here. Right. With the, um, you know, the overall standard of, of, of the season, within the, the, just trying to get some context about the Conti Cup final, mm. you know, Arsenal and Chelsea, two of the big three, it doesn't seem to have the same cachet as some of the other competitions. Am I being unfair there? Oh, that's a difficult one. Um, I, maybe in the early stages, not so much, but I think as the competition go, goes deeper, I think you start to see that, particularly in the quarterfinals and the semifinals, the level does take does go up a notch a fair bit. So I would say maybe, yeah, not in the early rounds, but definitely as you come to the latter end of the competition, I think things start to ramp up, purely because it's still a trophy at the end of the day and it's still a title. We talked about Nick Kishing earlier, you know, he's... He won the Conti Cup and his team won it several times and they're very proud about that fact because they recognise the significance of winning stuff and at the end of the day, as a player, you want to win trophies and the Continental Cup is a trophy. Yeah, and, and Ars- uh, Arsenal have been in it, it eight times yeah. since mm. and, um, 2011. It comes at the point in the season which really starts that momentum towards the end of the season. You win a trophy and then you're, you're, you're getting that impetus as you go into the closing stages towards the FA Cup final, mm-hmm. towards the Champions League for Arsenal this season. And then towards the title, and you could really pick up that 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 yeah that momentum. Mm. If we're looking at the, the the league with City, you know you've had Steph Houghton signing a new contract. They're beginning to you know, get their ducks in a row for the next couple of seasons. Mm. Do you still see them staying at the top of the game? And who do you think will take over from Nick Cushing? 
Well, Alan Mahan is temporarily taken over, so I guess he's now got on trial. The job is his to lose, in a way. I mean, City have shown they've prepared a point for him internally, not necessarily a point of big name from outside. If it all starts falling to pieces in the next few months, there's no reason to think, think it will, then obviously they'll be looking around. And it could be anybody. I mean, it could be Jill Ellis, for example. You know, what signing that would be? would be quite tempting for her. Cloud Club with huge pockets, major investment, good, uh, good setup. She's got the ambassadorial role with the US Federation at the moment. So that would possibly... Otherwise, I mean, City, let's be honest, they could basically bring in anybody. I mean, the irony is Montemiro did work for a City offshoot mm. when he was in Melbourne before, before he went to Arsenal. But, yeah, I guess, but at the moment, it's a caretaker's job. He's in pole position. Because mm. you mentioned Chama tomorrow. He's really impressed me whenever I've met him. Will he become frustrated by the lack of resource maybe he's got at Arsenal? It's difficult for me to say because, obviously, I... You know, I, I'm not in his head. I don't know what he's thinking. I think it, it can be an, it could be an issue for him. I remember Emma Hayes, when she was talking about Arsenal last season, saying the amount of players that they had in there and the investment that's gone into the team. She wished that Chelsea could do the same. And now they have done the same in, in this season. So possibly frustration. But I think injuries have played a, a massive part. I think mm. Arsenal have been extremely unlucky on that front because they've got several players out. But, you know, you just, you want your team to be, at the top level, you want the investment, you want the support from the club. So, of course, he, he may potentially ask for some additional funding come the end of the season. Mm. Because of that competitive pressure, so will we see a transfer market evolve? You know, FIFA have just start, issued some stats where I think it's 96.3% of the deals done in women's soccer are freebies. Will we see an uptick in transfer activity between clubs? I think so. I think the contracts will become longer as the game becomes more professional. At the moment, people move around more often hmm. because they're not sure what's going to happen next. But I, I think as you see things to start settle down, you're definitely... And you are starting to see those big signings come in. I mean, uh, Sam Kerr's through. You, you know, it, like you are getting those big big deals. It's just whether they become more consistent. And the significant thing about Kerr's deal, it was quite a long-term deal. It wasn't mm. like a loan signing. There's a lot of loan signings moving because of the people playing various leagues around the world. I mean, but two-thirds of all the men's transfers are free transfers. I mean, it's a, it's a precarious profession unless you're the top-end of talent. Mm. Will the women's game, though, begin to emulate some of that sort of financial... The, the financial perspective that you can if the clubs want to. I mean, let's be honest, the amount of money required in the women's game to make an impact is, is chicken feed to, to the men's yeah. clubs in the Premier League, for example. If... Yeah, if Bournemouth, for example, wanted to create a top-notch Premier League team, even with their resources, they could do so easily in the women's game because there's that amount of they pick up 120, 130 million pounds from the Premier League. Yeah, if they finish say 16th, 17th, that will go quite a long way. 10% of that will go a long way in the women's game. Mm. So it's just, if the clubs want to, it's certainly possible. Yeah, and the people who benefit obviously will be players and their friends, the agents. Yeah, <laughs> well, no, so we're going to creep into the game quite significantly now. Yeah, yeah. Is it because I've, I've read a couple of pieces very recently about the lack of transparency within women's football about the transfer market and and the fees paid and you know, our friends, the agents, what they get out of it as well. Is that fair? I think there is a lot of there's not a lot of knowledge about about it's not very clear. Yeah, it's, there's not not a lot of transparency. I think as the media coverage grows, that will become. That would change because people will start wanting to find out more and start digging around. But yeah, at the moment, it is quite a closed shop. Mm, yeah. What's been the impact of the you know, increased professionalism of the WSL on other leagues around the world? I think, 
I'd be bold just to say that the WSL is actually setting a benchmark of, around the world. The fact that you've been able to attract such a player like Sam Kerr into the league, I think that says that all. And I think other leagues potentially around the world are looking at what the WSL is doing and even the championship and, and seeing where we are going, that they're taking some lessons from that. And I think that's what Baroness Campbell wants. She wants the WSL to be the top level league in the world. And I think you're starting to see that now in terms of the players that want to come and play here. Mm. Do you think some of the uh, the players who've you know, gone to Lyon, for instance, do you think they'll, they'll end up coming back to England? I would imagine so. I, I, I definitely see that happening. As, uh, as the WSL becomes more professional across the board in terms of the standard, in terms of refereeing, you know, across the board, I think it will be a lot more attractive and the fact that every club is, is professional. Lyon's um, a bit of a special case because they keep winning the Champions League. Yeah. If they stop winning it, and Arsenal do or City do or Chelsea do, then that would attract those players. I mean, it's interesting to me in the American League, the NWSL this year has got first-time allocation, what they call allocation money. Basically, you can get above the salary cap to bring in marquee players or, or to keep marquee players. And they're clearly worried about losing players to England, especially after the Olympics when the Americans won't have anything to compete for for a couple of years for the national team. Mm. Speaking of the Olympics, I don't envy Phil Neville's job there. <laughs> How do you get an 18, you know, 18 people into that squad out of a viable, mm. how many viable candidates? 40? Yeah, yeah. He's starting to have those conversations now, hasn't he, with the different nations and the players as well about what his plans are. I don't envy him, him in the slightest. On the other hand, it's a golden opportunity to showcase talent that's coming through. Why not use it for that? Have a, a mixture of experienced players mixed with some, yeah, some of the young, I don't like the word, but younger talent that is starting. You know, the Chloe Kellys of this world, I think it would be a great opportunity. I don't know if she will, by the way, but an opportunity for somebody of her calibre to showcase what she can do. I don't envy him in the slightest. Mm. Like I can see the, the, the idealist, idealism of that, but in pragmatic terms, they've got to do well at the you know, win it. in Tokyo. Yeah, yeah you put yeah. the best team you can to win it. I think it's a, it's a really hard one because they, they also won't play together before the end of the season. Like, they're not going to play together as a squad, so... How do you... Well, you can shortcut them. I mean, Caroline Weir, for example, would know most of the England team because she exactly, plays with them. Exactly, that's what I was going to yeah, Kim yeah, Mitchell yeah. plays with Beth Mead. She yeah. plays with, you know, various England players, you know, one or two England players there. So there were some shortcuts from the club relationships you can bring yeah, in. But I mean, it's not like Jess Fishlock, you know, if she gets fit. She is more of a problem because although she's always an excellent player, she hasn't been playing with those players. I think, yeah, general. it's just a bit of a... It's like, whereas the other nations will be playing together all of this year. You look at the Netherlands, the USA... They're going to have the same squad and they're going to go through all the way. So I think there is that to factor in, but you have to pick the aim is to get that gold medal, mm -hmm. for sure. We're not going to get to a situation where there almost has to be a quota of home nations players in there, are we? I hope not. I hope they're chosen in terms of what they can bring, the experience, and also the, relation, the club relationships that they have already. I hope that's the criteria that's used rather than having quotas. But we know already the Scottish FA... Are not exactly feeling this anyway. So, and I'm hoping they'll change their mind over the next few weeks. I hope they are going to support their players. We had that in 2012, didn't we? Yeah. Where some FAs were very much against it, both for the men's and the women's teams. But some players were strong enough to say, "Well, I want to play." Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, for players like you know Fishlock, Engel, and Listen, where they're such good players that you know they could say, "I'll play." I mean, the FA are not going to say, "Well, we're not going to pick you then for Wales or Scotland." Mm. What do you make of the, the developments recently north of the border in Scotland? You know, you've got more full-time teams now, Rangers, Celtic getting involved and you know, having a strategic commitment to the women's game. Are we there at the cusp of something really important happening in Scotland as well? I think that's a big step because 
You would imagine, given the circumstances there, that Rangers and Celtic would drive each other on in the rivalry. You know, the fans would not... You know, there'd be enough fans who would say, well, we can't let be left behind here. Yeah, because they're still, they're still, they're still representing their club. Yeah, um, even if Scotland's been taking a, a lot longer to catch on to the women's game than, than the further south. And that, that, that's two big steps. It would be interesting to see what the, dyna- the Rangers Celtic dynamic brings to the league, because it's obviously it's not all positive. But clearly, you know, these, are, these are big clubs in Europe, in European level, and it's a challenge for Glasgow City to compete with. They've, put, they've you know, appointed serious managers with good, you know, either well-known or good track records, and they've brought in some players. So it'd be very interesting to see how this takes off. Because mm. the Lewis manager, they lost, they lost their manager, didn't mm-hmm. they? Yeah, he went to Celtic. And I think it's gonna, you're going to start seeing players going back over, over to the Scotland as well. We've seen a lot come down here in recent. But as the game professionalises over there, that's definitely going to see players go the other way as well. Mm-hmm. Where does international football fit into the jigsaw? You know, we've got the Sheba Leaves Cup at, at the end of early March. How important is it to have a winning England team? Is it still as fundamental as we always said it is? Oh, absolutely, because it's the pinnacle, isn't it, for every for every domestic player, regardless if they play for England, Wales, Scotland or, or Northern Ireland, they want to play for the, the national team. That's the ultimate for... Well, I would see that as an ultimate if I, if I was playing. And I think, you know, it is important to have a strong England team. So... You know, for Phil Neville, that you know he's going to be obviously thinking about the Euros for next year already, no doubt. And when you have somebody like Lucy Bronze, who's won every possible award going bar a couple, I think there's a lot of focus now on the England team going forward. Mm. If you had to, you know, you see a lot of football. So in terms of, you know, every squad usually has a what we call a bolter, doesn't it? You know, someone who comes out of nowhere from left field. If you had to pick one, who, you know, we, we should look out for over the next couple of months, who would it be? In England squad? Yeah. Ooh, it's tough. <laughs> there is a lot of young potential coming through. I mean, you saw the likes of like Lauren Hemp get her mm-hmm. debut last year, and she is, I mean, she is phenomenal. Her pace is just, she can change the game just like that with, with this, her change of speed. I think also Lauren James. I mean, you look I was at what, say Lauren James, yeah. what, what she's doing for United this season. Um, she is just, she could be probably the best footballer in this country. I also think it's a chance for Beth England to shine yeah. as well, I would say. Because mm. there was a lot of, you know, Ellen White is a fantastic player. She's absolutely brilliant. And I'm hoping that Beth England can also get to that point as well. And I think this, if, if she's chosen for the Olympics, this will be a great opportunity for her to show people what she can do. Mm. You know, we mentioned earlier on in passing about you know, ACL injuries. You know, it is an issue facing the game. You know, Ada Hegerberg's yeah. just had you know, yeah. her, set, her setback. Do we need more research? And does this need to be a priority off the pitch? We do. The question is who pays for it? As it always is. I mean, same with the Alzheimer's, you know, for ex-players. Who pays for it? Yeah, we obviously do need research. There's a lot more research required into the physiology of women's bodies and, you know, top-level sport. There's a very thin sort of amount of research being done in the past. There's not much to, to play on, but clearly there are some significant differences in the work that Claire was doing, that Claire Rafferty was doing at Roehampton, which is clearly a big step. Surprising reading that, which I think Susie did with The Guardian, how few clubs would take up the offer to get involved, because you would have thought it was a win-win from the club's point of view. Basically, they haven't got to pay anything, and they might keep a good player on the pitch. Mm. I mean, that's, you know, that's the key, isn't it? Getting players fit and ready. We talked about Arsenal. 
yeah. having a season potentially imploding because they haven't got enough players. You, you just think about the, the big name ACL injuries that have happened. And I mean, even like, like last week, Bristol announced two in one game. I mean, it's a big problem and there's something has to be done about it. And the more knowledge, the better about women's bodies, about how we can train better, how we eat better, everything that comes into the, the whole yeah, w way to make us be better footballers. It has, and protect us against injuries is just, mm. you know, it's vital. But it's all part of the professionalisation of the game, isn't it, Amory? Yeah, very much. You can get that expertise, you know, funding into the game. In that sense, and you know, we, we touched on it earlier about having Eni Luco in that sporting director type role at Aston Villa. I'm assuming that, that, that Villa are probably going to come up, aren't they? Symbolically, how important was that appointment? Huge. Huge appointment. I know when Eni posted on her social media that a big announcement was coming, there was lots of whispers about what is it going to be and there was a feeling it was something to do within the women's game and then the official announcement came through. I think it's massive. For, and I'm surprised, actually, that a WSL that she didn't go to a WSL team, but I understand the reasons for Aston Villa. Mm -hmm. It's her home. I mean, what more can you say? And I'm hoping... No, I believe and I want to see more clubs employ a women's sporting director. And I think the next step should be a WSL club for sure. But I think it's massive and, and huge congratulations to her. Well played, Villa as well, well played. Mm. You, I mean, you, you saw them yesterday. They're a decent team, aren't they? I saw Leicester yesterday. Yeah. But um, Villa are very, very good and they can be very good and they're putting the investment where, 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 where it matters. Um, someone like any the experiences that she has at all levels of the game. She's been around for a long time, international level, at domestic level. I mean, she's going to bring so much to the, to a growing squad, a young squad, as they, as they move up into the, the WSL. Do you think, you know, the, the men's game still hasn't really got its head around the idea of a sporting director? They, no, it's also interesting the idea of promoting players. I mean, it's always been interesting how English football has very rarely promoted players into positions of authority. I mean, Trevor Brooking would be the one that leaped to mind. Compared to, say, Germany, where Bayern have always been run by ex-players, Rummenigge, Hoenis, people like that, and uh, Beckenbauer, obviously. In Spain, Butchagrain had a role. I mean, so other countries seem to be much more prepared to promote players. Yeah, but I don't think they've had quite the same employers and serfs mentality that dogged English football until relatively recently. You know, um, the idea that players were below stairs sort of thing. Yeah. Women's football being a newer sport doesn't come with those same hang-ups. Yeah, and as, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the women have got wider world experience and therefore can move into those. You know, you think of other sports. Rob Andrew, for example, would be a successful athlete who then moved into administrative roles. I mean, you know, cricket rather than rugby. But, so it's obviously, you know, there's no reason why sports people can't be administrators as well. Mm. Executives. So to draw it all together... If I asked you for one thing that you would like to see done to aid the development of the women's game, what would it be? All three of you. Man, to aid the development of the women's game. I'm dealing game. a few hospital passes today, I know. <laughs> <laughs> to aid the women's game. I'm going to go with studies into ACL injuries. I will go with refereeing. Winning the Olympics. I mean, that's sort of more wish list than something that can be done. It's not necessarily in their control, but winning the Olympics will make a huge impact. Yeah. Well, I think education is key and perspective. Now, I've got a confession to make. It wasn't until recently that I realised the women's game was also banned in countries like Brazil, Germany and France. That's mind-blowing. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.